0: Well, hey, it's good to be with you today and for me to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you. As uh, Pastor Tim mentioned earlier, we are continuing in the serving series in troubled times with a message titled, Remember and Worship. Remember and Worship. Over the last uh, several weeks, we've been looking at our hearts critical to what it means to be a follower of Christ and to live a life that's being transformed, but looking at our hearts and the ways in which we sin according to the brokenness of those hearts. And we're going to put the slide up here on the screen that we've seen the past couple of of weeks here. You know, the broken heart lives life in fear, anger, foolishness, and despair. But the hope that we have... And it is hope, it's not just pie-in-the-sky thinking, but the hope that we genuinely actually have is that the fix to our broken hearts is that when we regularly encounter God, as we are doing here this morning, as we encounter God in His Word, and we exalt Him, is that fear can be replaced with trust, despair can be replaced with hope, foolishness can be replaced with satisfaction, and as we heard last week, Anger can be replaced with surrender. What hope, what an opportunity we have. It's incredible. So as we continue to wrap our heads and I guess we could say wrap our hearts around all of this, we want to remember all that God is for us, all that God has done for us, and we want to worship him as we look at Psalm 144. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 144 this morning as we look into what God has to say to us this morning. Let me set the context for you. It's important that we understand why David was writing this psalm. This psalm was written by David, as, uh, as it says, a psalm of David. And uh, David had, as he wrote this, the context is he had already ascended to the throne. Um, he was the recognized king, leading as a legitimate king over all of Israel. No longer was he struggling with if Saul was still in power and still the king. So David was recognized as a legitimate king, and David is describing for us in this psalm a situation in which he and his nation were coming under attack by a foreign empire. Look at verse 11. David says this as a part of the psalm. He says, "'Rescue me and deliver me from the hands of foreigners.'" Whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. So here's David. Context, his psalm, legitimate king, but yet an empire was moving in to try to conquer. So certainly, David, a man in troubled times. It appears that David and Israel still had more enemies attacking them and intent on annihilating David and the nation of Israel. And David is here faced with a serious problem. And he had a deep concern for this impending danger for himself and for his nation. And he was calling out to God in this psalm to rescue and deliver not only him, but to deliver the nation as well. David recognized the trouble. He didn't minimize the circumstance. He didn't try to ignore the trouble. He didn't try to just sweep it under the rug, so to speak, but he recognized the threat and recognize the uncertainty of the situation that that was facing him. Now, even though God had previously rescued and provided for David in so many troubling circumstances, in so many difficult situations, I I mean, as a shepherd boy, David, it says he killed lions and bears that attacked his flock. Um, His victory over the giant Goliath. Um, His many military victories that already were in the books as well as his complicated ascension to the throne when when Saul was king and David was in the process of being recognized and placed as the legitimate king. God was faithful to David through all of that, through all of the problems, through all of the difficulties. But here David is crying out to God. Crying out to God. And I think David recognized the trouble, he recognized the threat, and he recognized all of the uncertainty that he was facing. But God was ever faithful to David in all of those experiences. Yet, David knew that previous victories, previous successes that he had experienced as a shepherd boy, as a a warrior, those previous successes don't automatically guarantee present victories. He wasn't going to passively sit back. He was aware that he couldn't take anything for granted and therefore he pours out his heart in this psalm, in this prayer of Psalm 144, pleading for God to help. And that's what Psalm 144 is all about. It's a psalm that looks into his prayer journal, that looks into the depth of his heart as to what he was struggling with. Well, in this prayer, David first focuses on God before anything else Before he gets to the problems, before he gets to the trouble, before he begins to identify verbally what's going on, he focuses first on God before he considers the trouble that he's in. And let me say that's always, always a wise way to approach a problem. Um, Begin first by considering God. Consider his abilities. Consider his character. Consider his faithfulness. Consider his power. Remember all that God has done for you and for David. And you see, when we do that first, it will then put our troubles and our problems in their proper perspective. When we have a very big God, our problems become very small. But when we have a very small God, we have very big problems. Well, David's troubles, his concern was of an impending military conflict, um, you sit here this morning, and I would guess that your concerns, your problems, your difficulties, your troubled times are not military in nature, but it could be an impending financial problem or trouble. It could be an impending health diagnosis. It could be some marriage troubles. It could be troubles and difficulties with kids. It could be troubles and difficulties with school. It could be legal. It could be work could be unemployment. The list could go on. But know this, even in the midst of the troubles and the difficulties, when we have a proper view of God and who he is and what he can do and what he can be for us, our worship will be all that it can be and your troubles will shrink in the light of God's bigness and God's greatness. So that's where we're kind of headed with some of this. You see, when we see our God for who he truly is and our hearts aren't driven by the brokenness of of fear, despair, anger, or foolishness, as we've talked about the last number of weeks. But when our hearts are beating passionately to trust in God, to hope in God, to our satisfaction in who He is, and our surrender to Him, our worship and our walk with God will be rich, it will be satisfying, even in troubled times. And so that leads us to the first truth. Truth about our worship in difficult times, in our whacked out, broken world. And the first truth is, true worship starts with a proper view of God and yourself. True worship starts with a proper view of God and yourself. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 144. David writes, he says, Blessed be the Lord. It's Yahweh, God's personal name. He says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war. My fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he is whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. So, as David thinks about his God, and as David thinks about his trying circumstances, he's putting things in perspective here. He's reminded about all that God has been for him and can be for him in troubled times. And so, what he does is he lists six different characteristics about God, that are not only true for David, but they're also true for us as well, and it should lead us to a greater sense of worship, we need to begin with our understanding and view of God. A.W. Tozer, in a great little book titled Knowledge of the Holy, says this about our worship. He says, "...worship is pure or base, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God." Let me read that again. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains or has correct understanding in a view of God, entertains those high or those low thoughts of God. A right view of God is of absolute importance for our worship to be all that it can be and all that it should be. If your view of God is one where he just is Sort of like this deistic God who, yes, has power to create and he put this earth into motion and it's kind of like a a wind-up clock and that God, years and years ago, created everything, wound that clock up, and then it's just distant and disengaged. What kind of God is that? What kind of worship would you really want to give to that kind of a God? Or what if you have a view of, of a pantheistic kind of God who, God is everything, God is everywhere. How's your worship? You're going to be worshiping all sorts of things. Or or what if your view of God is that he's just this this irate, mad person who sits up in heavens and the only time we hear from him is when we do something wrong because then he brings the hammer down. What's your view of God? I mean, those are views that, that will just warp our worship and not allow us to worship in spirit and in truth as God truly has called us. To worship him. But is your God eternal, sovereign, the creator, sustainer, unlimited in power and knowledge, holy and pure and personal? Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Look at Jesus. Know who he is and worship him. Well, the first truth that David says about God is that he is my rock. Not just some pebble, not just some little stone, but he says he is my rock. And what I love is that 19 times throughout the Psalms, God is referred to as my rock. And here David was thinking of a physical element in the world that for him conveyed this this powerful spiritual reality. And it can also be the same for us as well. For David, as as he had this picture in his mind, That God was his firm foundation, massive, stable, something that could not be moved or shaken. Let me throw a picture up here on the screen of Mount Hermon. And this is what David may have been thinking about as he looked off into the distance. Mount Hermon is, is in northern Israel. And what's so unique about this is that David, that was probably his familiarity with the largest piece of rock. Now, for us, it could have been something else if it were in our time and day and age, I mean, visiting the Grand Canyon, if you've been there, you kind of go, you might have said, man, God is my Grand Canyon. He's deep, he's wide, he's massive, he's impressive. But here David may have been thinking about Mount Hermon, which was 9,232 9, feet above sea level. It covers an area of 270 square miles. It's massive. And that was a picture that he had of his God. What is your picture of your God, of Yahweh? Yahweh was not only David's certain and firm foundation, but he was also the one who prepared him for being the warrior king of Israel. When he says, notice, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. David here understood that God was ultimately his instructor. David knew that everything that he had learned about using those weapons was under the overseeing eye of God. David knew that everything he learned was from God ultimately. Not only as a warrior, but also as a king and as a leader. The same, I think, could maybe be true of each one who sits here today. As you consider and think about the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God has given to each one of us. And what he has called us to do with those gifts and abilities and talents that he's given to us. And I think it's true that he will prepare you for what he's called you to do. As God prepared David. He prepared him for what he was calling David to do. God will prepare. It was a number of years ago when I was graduated from high school and I was pursuing a a degree in horticultural science because I wanted to start my own landscape business. And and as I began into that industry, I I began to sense a a drawing away from that to full-time ministry full-time vocational ministry. I just felt this constant tug in my own heart, in my own life. And, and we then took the step, Becky and I took the step to sort of leave that, that arena of, of focus and of, and of employment and uh, went off to Bible college, went to seminary and, and received the training and God was preparing me for what he was calling me to do to serve and care for people. And it was as if God was saying, Kent, you know, instead of growing and caring for plants, I want you to grow and care for people. And that was his call upon my heart and my life. But the training took place in, in college, in seminary, and seminary, but a lot of the training took place outside of that classroom through just a life experience. God was training me. God's training you. God's not going to call you into some area if he's not trained you to be capable of doing that. Well, so God was not only David's rock. God was not only David's instructor here. But David also knew of God's unwavering love for him as he says, look at verse 2. It says, he is my steadfast love. The word David used is the Hebrew word hesed. And this describes a covenantal love. It's a loyal love that isn't contingent upon what I do or don't do. There's a difference between a covenant and a contract. A covenant says, I will do this no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what you do, no matter how you respond. I will accomplish, I will commit to doing whatever I commit to do. A contract often has agreements. It's it's as if I will do this if you do this. Or I will do this, but if I don't do this, then you're not obligated to do this. So the difference between a a covenant and, and a contract. Oftentimes in The wedding vows, where we and the staff around here, when we officiate our weddings, we will oftentimes talk about in the marriage vows. It's a covenant. It's a covenant between a man and a woman. It's a covenant that the man is making to the woman. A covenant that the woman is making to the man. Where a covenant and promise before God and these witnesses, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, for sickness and health, that I will love you no matter what. That I will love you unconditionally. I will love you with a loyal love. I will love you Not if you, but no matter what. That's the kind of love that David was experiencing. That's the kind of love that that God has for us. It's a loyal love. Please understand. You will never be loved. You will never be loved more than God loves you now. Now. You will never be loved less than God loves you now. Understand that. His love is constant. His love is certain. It never wavers. It never changes. It is always the same. So God's love for you is not based upon your performance. It's not based upon you trying to muscle through it in in, in hopes that God's going to love you more. Or when you fail, you go, man, God must just love me less. That's not who God is. He loves you. He loves us with a covenantal love, an everlasting love. There's nothing that we could ever do or say that is going to change the depth or the degree of God's love for us. Do you understand that? I had a perfect picture of this many, many years ago. My parents divorced when when I was younger, and my father raised my two brothers and me, and, and my younger brother, Kurt, who was probably 13, years old, and dealing with the, the turmoil, the aftermath, the frustration, the hurt, the heartache of, of, of divorce, and, and uh, our mother leaving us. Uh, one day, I remember very clearly, could see the picture in my head, even now, that my dad and my younger brother, Kurt, were just going at it, head to head. They were just going at it, yelling at each other, more my brother yelling at my dad. My dad, pretty patient about the circumstance. And my brother was saying some of the vilest terrible things. My, I think my dad understood. He was just expressing the hurt, the heartache, and everything he was going through. But I remember my dad making this statement that I remember even to this day. He said to my brother, Kurt, he said, Kurt, there is nothing that you could say or do that's going to stop me from loving you. He said, you're my son and I love you. Nothing. It's going to change my dad's love for my brother. Nothing will change God's love for you. Absolutely nothing, nothing whatsoever. Write this passage down: Psalm 103:17. Psalm 103:17. But the steadfast love of the Lord, the hesed love of the Lord, the covenantal love of the Lord—it's from everlasting to everlasting, never changing, always the same. For David, it was in that everlasting love that David became fully aware, cognizantly aware of his security in God as he says, God is my fortress. He's my stronghold. He's my deliverer. He's my shield. And he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. It was that love that David experienced, that David knew, that kept him moving forward. And although David was living in those troubled times, with an impending empire moving in his direction, David could with confidence declare God's security, God's faithfulness, and you can too. No matter what you're walking through, no matter what you're dealing with, understand God is your fortress, God is your stronghold, He is your deliverer, He is your shield, and it is in Him who you take refuge These are all statements that David found God to be for him in the past. And because of that, David was able to declare with confidence and conviction firsthand God's faithfulness. David was remembering God's faithfulness, his protection, his goodness, his care, and his deliverance. So the question is, how about you? Can you remember God's faithfulness? Remember his protection? Remember how good God has been to you. Don't forget that in the midst of the troubled times. Well, true worship starts with a proper view of God, but also a proper view of ourselves and the brevity of our life here on earth. And we have that stated for us in verses three and four. Look at in Psalm one forty-four. David writes. He says, "O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath; his days are like a passing shadow." As we've heard. Pastor Tim speak from Psalm 90 just last week that our life is like a breath. You know, in the fall you walk out or in a cold winter morning you walk out and you exhale and there's your breath and you see it right in front of you, but within seconds it's gone. disappears. That's what our life is like in comparison to eternity. Or like a passing shadow, David writes. You know, there's a dot on... On, on the ground here or something and there's an object in front of it and as the sun moves, the, the, the shadow just hits that object just briefly and, and it's like a passing shadow. See, our lives are like a breath, like a passing shadow. And see, David is, is I think, here overwhelmed. He is amazed, as we should be as, two, as well, to, that we are cared for, to be loved by, to be noticed, And to be acknowledged by the God of the universe, especially when our lives here on this earth are just so brief and so short. David says our lives are like a breath, the passing shadow. Psalm 90, verse 12, says, Teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. Why? That we may get a heart of wisdom. Today, I have lived twenty-three thousand one hundred and thirteen days. It's a lot of days. I'll let your mathematicians figure out how old I am and when, when my birthday actually is. But as I think about having lived twenty-three thousand one hundred and thirteen days, I've also been very aware that there's never a guarantee for number twenty-three thousand one hundred fourteen. Not a guarantee. Now, I'm not planning to to leave anytime soon, um, but we do need to be reminded that this earth is not our home. It's not. Not our home. But yet we oftentimes find ourselves living in such a way that we're planning to live on this earth for eternity. Our earth is not, this earth is not our home. And our lives here are but a breath, a passing shadow, And with that, we should be reminded that each day that we have is a gift of grace from God. No matter how many days we have. And so don't waste them. We need to live with perspective. That's that heart of wisdom that that Moses was talking about in Psalm 90 that Pastor Tim talked about last week. Live with a heart of of wisdom and that means live with perspective. Perspective. As a pastor, I've participated in over 80 memorial or funeral services over my 35 years of of pastoral ministry. 80 plus memorial services, funeral services. You can't be a part of that many memorial services, as hard and difficult as most of them have been, without coming away with a a renewed, different perspective. Having laid to rest the very youngest, the very oldest, and everything in between, I've always come away from those services with a renewed perspective, a reminder of the uncertainty and the shortness of my own life and the days God has left for me. Knowing that we are only living for a brief moment on this earth, it would be wise for us to focus on the eternal. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that our, we are these earthen vessels, jars of clay, fragile Bodies that are wasting away. So let's acknowledge it. I mean, let's take care of ourselves, but let's acknowledge the fact that we're not going to live here forever. Life here on Earth, this earth is like a dot. Just a simple little dot on a rope that's thousands and thousands of miles long that could represent eternity, but our life is just that little simple dot. We are truly... Jars of clay wasting away. You see, God is eternal and we're temporal. He stands forever and we're passing through and away physically from this earth. We need to maintain a sense of wonder and awe and worship our amazing God. Not only do we have a broken heart that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks that needs to be transformed, but we also have a broken world as a result of our own sin. And the encouragement that we have here as we, as we sit here today is that Philippians 1 6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring that work to completion. He who began the work will bring it to completion. God is in the process of transforming our hearts from, from, from one degree of glory to the next, as he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, from one degree of glory to the next, we're being transformed. God is accomplishing his work as he transforms our heart from brokenness to wholeness. And so what David does is he now cries out to God after he sort of sets the context of a proper view of God and a proper view of who I am. David now cries out to God to intervene and work in the brokenness of his world. David, knowing who God is and what he can do, he now calls out to God in the midst of his troubles which leads us to the second truth. And that truth is, cry out to God to work in this broken world with authority. Cry out to God to work in this broken world with authority. David is fully aware that he's unable by himself to defeat the the enemies that are moving his direction. And so what he does is he cries out to God to appear in great power and deliver him from his attackers. And he uses the imagery of a a mountain on fire to illustrate the awesome power and the presence of God. Look at verses 5 and 6. David writes, he says, Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Wow, quite a prayer. Now perhaps David's asking God to repeat for him what God had done for the people of Israel as he powerfully showed up as they left Egypt and landed at the foot of Mount Sinai where God's presence was visibly observed with smoke and fire and enlightening. And so David here cries out for God to be as present in his day and in his circumstances as he was when God revealed himself on the mountain. He's saying, please God, do this for me. Do it now. David here was remembering what God had done for Moses, what God had done for the nation of Israel. And we should also remember what God has done not only for others, But let's not forget all the amazing things that God has done in us and for us as we've walked with him through this broken world. I've been reminded of God's incredible faithfulness in so many ways over the years. And the reason I've been able to remember, because the older I get, the more I forget, but the reason I'm able to remember is on occasion I'll use a prayer journal or I'll use three by five cards and I'll put a prayer request and I'll put a date by that. And whenever life sort of seems as if it's Out of control, and I'm not quite sure what's happening, and I feel as if it's just falling apart around me. I go back to that journal. And I see the prayers that I prayed in the journal or in the three by five cards where I've listed those, and when I've seen an answer to prayer, I'll write that there and I'll set it aside. And I'm remembering all that God has done. Remembering all that God has done. Well, David here continues in the Psalm with, with another imagery of God, not as coming down from heaven with smoke and flashing lightning. But now asking God, in verses 7 and 8, he said, Stretch out your hands from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from, from the many waters. For the hand of foreigners whose mouth speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. David's feeling as if he's drowning in the troubles. And so he's crying out to God to reach down, to, to rescue him. To reach down from heaven and pull him to a place of safety. David's admitting he's helpless. He's desperate and not able to solve the problems himself. Is that where you are today? Is that you this morning? Have you reached a place where you're feeling as if you're sinking helplessly down into the waters of those circumstances that are out of your control? If so, it's time to reach your hand up to God and cry out for his help. I remember when our family was first confronted with a cancer diagnosis. It was my dad who was diagnosed with CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and then passed away with that. And then my mom with ovarian cancer and also passed away with that. And then in the fall of 2000, when my wife Becky was diagnosed with breast cancer. And Then my own cancer diagnosis in 2011 with hairy cell leukemia, And then 2012 with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then it returned again in 2016. And then my younger brother, just this last October, was diagnosed with ALL, acute lymphocytic leukemia, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. We're kind of feeling like the poster family for cancer. I'm not making light of that, but I'm just simply saying in the midst of that, you can't have those kinds of events happen in your life Brain tumors, cancer, sickness, death, hurt, heartache, all of that. You can't have those kinds of events going on in your family or, or, or those friends who are dear to you and not feel like a big-time rescue and deliverance is needed. And what you do is you long for God to reach down His loving, compassionate hand and pull you up or those you love out of the troubled waters that they're sinking into. But as Becky and I have walked through those seasons of life, as I'm sure many of you have also walked through those kinds of seasons of life, we have certainly been remembered. God has been ever faithful, ever true, ever present, ever helpful, all powerful, always good, always loving. And we have been reminded of that over and over and over again. And we have been able to worship Him through the brokenness of this world and the hurt and the heartache of our circumstances. That's our God. That's what he wants to do for us, in us, in the midst of a broken world. What hope that is. What an opportunity we have to worship him. You may be here today feeling like you're drowning in those health problems. Or it could be those financial problems. could be those work problems. could be the marriage problems. Or as King David was experiencing, not only those kind of problems, but also he says that he was being attacked verbally by others. And they're telling lies about you, as we were telling lies about him, gossiping about David, gossiping about you, making false statements about you and your motives and actions, and you know they're not true. And so what should your response be in the midst of that? What should your response be in those seasons of life? It's not anger, It's a broken heart. It's not despair, it's a broken heart. It's not fear, it's a broken heart. Not foolishness, that's a broken heart. That's a sinful broken heart. But there should be a lowering down of our arms in surrender and hope and trust and satisfaction. To an amazing God of love and cry out to Him because He loves you and He knows you. God knows. He knows. 1962 a trumpetist by Louis Armstrong. Anybody know the name? Few. Yeah. wrote a song. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. That were the words of the song. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows but Jesus. You may be here this morning. You may be having a struggle and a battle and troubled times that nobody, nobody knows about. But Jesus does. But Jesus does. So when we are in the midst of our troubles and difficulties, know that Jesus knows. Know that you can surrender it all to him and worship him in your most troubling of circumstances because Jesus knows and Jesus loves so when we're sideswiped by life's troubles and we feel like we're drowning in the difficulties of this broken world, uh, the broken world that we broke, God didn't design it that way. He designed it perfectly. But in the broken world that we have created, we sh- should cry out to God. So let me share with you four ways in which you can cry out to God to work in our lives in, in this world. We cry out to God first. How? In humility. We cry out in humility. You know, it's hard for us to admit that we can't solve a problem that's pride and it's not until we can admit that we won't cry out to God for his help because we're trying to fix the problem God wants to see in us a broken and a contrite heart that humbly seeks his help so we cry out to God in humility second we cry out to God in submission we don't bargain with God about the need yeah we we do present our needs we do present our requests to God. We do ask God what our heart's desire is, our sincere requests to Him. But in that asking for God to work, we're asking that God be glorified and we're praying, Lord, not my will in this, but your will be done. So we cry out in humility, we cry out in submission, and we cry out with urgency. That's three. With urgency. You know, we need to recognize that the circumstances need God's immediate intervention. That was what David was saying. He says, God, problem, situation, trouble, I need you and I need you now. So we do it with urgency. There should be an urgency to our prayers with a sense of desperation, where we say, I long for you to work, Lord, and work now. And then, fourth, by faith. So we cry out in humility, in submission with urgency and by faith what i mean by that is you cry out to god acknowledging god's ability to do what no one else could ever do psalm chapter 3 verse 4 i cried aloud to the lord in humility in submission in urgency by faith and he answered me from his holy hill I cried and he answered when we approach God submissively, humbly, with urgency, and by faith. Once we've cried out to the Lord, we should then look forward to God answering that and doing his work in our lives and in the world around us. And that leads us to the third point. Experience his provision and keep your songs of expression fresh. Verses 9 and 10 David writes, he says, I will sing a new song to you, O God, and I will do it upon a ten-stringed harp. I will play to you. You who give victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. And what I find so intriguing about all of this is that David here envisions. He envisions and he looks forward to when God will intervene in his situation, and he commits to worshiping His God and declaring victory over it all for God's glory. And the same needs to be true for us. When we see God working, it should produce a new expression of gratitude and thanks to Him, which becomes a new offering of worship as we make much of God through all of our troubles. And we can do that. Then we look at verse 11. David restates what he stated here in verse 7. He says, rescue me, deliver me from the hands of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a a right hand of falsehood. It's almost as if David says, yes, I said this back a, a few phrases earlier, but Lord, just want to make sure you remember here what's going on in my heart in the troubled circumstance. But for us, it's God is saying rescue. And David continues to envision what the future will look like for him and his nation as God intervenes. Look at verses 12, 13, and 14. David writes, he says, May our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. I've wondered what that would kind of look like, but we'll leave that for later. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce, May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. That's what David was envisioning. That's what David was longing for. That was David's prayer. And for us, for us, for you, for me, it may be that longing for no more sickness, for no more pain, no more heartache, no more, no more war, no more turmoil in my life. No more sickness, no more hurt, no more sin. It's like the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray where he said, you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's an envisioning of what the... Future will look like, and what God can and will do. And we long for that. We long for that heaven on earth. And then David concludes with this declarative statement in verse 15. He said, Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. The word blessed or blessed means to be fully satisfied, to be joyful. To have contentment in your life and in your circumstances, as difficult or troublesome as they might be, because we know our God can. We know that our God will. And even if he doesn't, we worship him for who he is. Did you ever hear that phrase before? Amen. Because he has a plan, God has a purpose, God is working. This last week I was blown away with the passage of Scripture, not only Psalm 144, but on Isaiah 46, verses 8, 9, and 10. Just sort of captured my attention in a brand new way. Isaiah 46, 8 to 10, as we bring this to a close this morning. Because it had some of these words that we're talking about. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he makes this declaration. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. And then the statement, For I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring, the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. Amen? If that doesn't get you excited about worshiping God, I don't know what does or what can. No one like him, no one, he alone is sovereign he alone is the god of the universe and that's the god that we cry out to that's the god that is working in our hearts in our lives and in our circumstances and in our world and we have every reason to be hopeful in spite of the troubled times that we find ourselves in so remember who he is what he has done and worship him for he is true worship authentic worship heart transformed worship starts with a proper view of god and a good understanding of you